Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We'll begin with a cautionary tale about our kids, especially those with disadvantaged backgrounds. So many of them get off to a bad start, and that can lead them to a very bad place. Women's Voices Raised for Social Justice, a social justice advocacy organization here, has organized a program for tomorrow night titled Juvenile Injustice, Kids in Crisis from School to Courts. Joining me in studio to discuss the issue, the Reverend Karen Anderson, pastor of Ward Chapel AME Church in Florissant and president of Metropolitan Congregations United in St. Louis. Catherine Banks is a lecturer in law and director of the New Children's Rights Clinic at Washington University School of Law. Ladies, thanks so much for being with us. Nice to have you. Thank Thank you. If I may, Reverend Anderson, let me begin with you. Juvenile injustice covers a pretty broad spectrum. What are we talking about? Um, We are talking about anything that adversely affects our children in regard to how they are seen and viewed by the juvenile justice system. And so for us, we focus in on certain aspects. We focus on how the children are treated in the school system, how they're treated once they enter the juvenile justice court system. We talk about kids in crisis, Catherine. Uh, Elaborate on that. What kind of crises are we talking about? Um, I don't know where to start. Our our kids are in crisis, um, and it is the juvenile justice system. It's the education system. It's mental health systems. It's um, health systems throughout the area. Um, It's interactions with um, police agencies. Um, Kids are facing challenges every – in many different places in their lives. And so um, it's important that we as adults and stakeholders look at all of, all of those different areas and, and address those. Is there a profile of the kids that we're talking about? Um, I, I think it's dangerous to profile um, yeah. because when you start making exceptions, then you miss kids who are also mm-hmm. being impacted. But I think what we've seen in a lot of the systems that we work with, that it is African-American youth who are uh, seem to be disproportionate, disproportionately impacted uh, by some of those systems and specifically males. Um, within those systems. Well, what about, uh, Reverend, what about the the, the age? Are we talking about kids of a certain age or just a a wide swath of of young people? No, I agree with Catherine. It's a wide swath. Um, We see it beginning as early as kindergarten and moving all the way through high school and college. So um, I don't think there's a particular age group. I think as we talk about it, I think the potential increases with high school, but we talk from kindergarten all the way through the educational system. We're not talking about kids in kindergarten and being involved with the criminal justice system, are we? Indirectly, yes. We're talking yeah. about children um, as young as kindergarten being expelled from school uh, for behavioral issues, um, and particularly disproportionately for children of color, um, where they're not given an opportunity um, for counseling or they're not given an opportunity for a second chance or to be placed in a quiet room. Um, so, yes, we are talking about children as young as, as kindergarten. And the earlier they begin to experience things like expulsion from school, the more likely they'll have contact as they grow up with the um, police in our neighborhoods. Catherine, how did we get here? If I knew the answer, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't think we would be in the in the situation. Um, I think it is just years and years and years of um, decisions and policies um, that have gotten us here. I I do have to say that I don't think it's coming from people who are trying to intentionally do harm to children and families. I think it is decisions and policies that have been been put in place um, that are well-intentioned but unfortunately have um, 
an impact that they don't realize that they're going to have. Do you think it's rooted more in the issue of poverty or discrimination? Um, I think those come hand in hand. Um, I think you can be discriminated against uh, because of skin color, but you can also be discriminated against because um, of poverty. Um, And so I think those come hand in hand. You can't separate those and say it's one or the other. What do you you think, Reverend? I agree. I think they definitely go hand in hand. Um, you, you, You really can't separate the two. So it is poverty. And it's the implicit bias that we have against poor people. And um, that's not always limited to people of color. It's also against poor people in general. And so I think it's both discrimination and poverty. It's important to point that out, too, mm-hmm. because these problems do go hand in hand with the, uh, with the poverty issue, no question about it. So uh, we know there's a problem. We know there's been an ongoing problem. What in the world can be done about it? Well, through uh, Metropolitan Congregations United, uh, we have been working for the past three years on a program that we call Break the Pipeline, which we've recently um, changed the title to Pathways to Power because we wanted to have a more positive slant on what we're doing. And so we've taken um, basically a three-prong approach, which is looking at school reform, juvenile justice reform, and police reform. Um, So... What we've done is with school reform, we've been trying to work with school districts throughout St. Louis and St. Louis County to look at their disciplinary um, uh, policies. How do they discipline children? And we've particularly asked them to look at their policies regarding kindergarten through third grade, and we have asked them to commit to eliminating out-of-school suspensions for kindergartners through third grade because it is not an effective way of disciplining children. And so we've worked with school districts. We've held um, meetings with superintendents, with school boards. We've actually this year had a commitment from, uh, I think, 20 five school districts to look at policies. And we've given them a three-prong approach, schools that are willing to change their policy immediately, schools that are willing to change their policies in the next year, and those who are willing to change in the next two to three years. Um, We've asked them to look at things like trauma-informed care. How do we handle children who may live in um, what can be called toxic stress environments? So those are poverty, right? They may not have a place to lay their head. They may live in neighborhoods where there's high crime. They may not get food at night. These children are not going to be as attentive in class. And so how do we deal with those children? Um, We're looking at what we call the MOUs, the Memorandums of Understanding. Many of the schools have resource officers, which are police officers, who come into the school and we need to more um, uniquely define their scope. What can they do and what can they not do? What are levels around how they um, discipline children? That should really be the school district. But if there's a problem that exceeds um, a minor offense, then yes, you may need to call in the police. So there are a lot of prongs to how we address this. Catherine, is this, is this uh, whole effort helped at all by what happened in Ferguson and, and particularly what happened after Ferguson? Because a lot of people came in and started making suggestions about the kinds of things we're talking about. Right. And I think um, Ferguson was a maybe a blessing in disguise in that it forced a lot of the issues that we may have been talking about individually in our silos, in our social groups, in our churches. It forced us as a community to confront those issues on a larger scale. Um, and it forced us to not um, – turn away because we now we had the national spotlight on us, right? And so we had to do something and we had to address the issue. And so I think 
because of Ferguson now, you've seen a lot of people banding together, working together to try and address the problem and issues that we see for many of our children and families in the St. Louis area. And, and so I think that, that that's a positive that's come out of Ferguson. Reverend Anderson, how mm-hmm. do you see that? Do you see it the same way or do you see anything above and beyond what Catherine has just mentioned? No, I think it shined a spotlight on what we already knew and what organizations have been working on for a long period of time. Um, But something happens when the national news focuses in on your city. Something happens when the federal government steps in to look at processes and procedures. Um, And and so I think, as she said, a lot of good came out of Ferguson. Um, I think the problem becomes that when the national spotlight turns off of your area, then people begin to... Uh, I'll use a term my grandmother used to use. They used they slow walk the process. Mm-hmm. And so where they were very engaged mm-hmm. and willing to go at it 100 percent, now you see people backing off and going at it maybe 50 percent. You know, you say it focused in what, uh, what you already knew. Yes. Let me just suggest that African Americans already knew it, but a lot of white people didn't. They were taken totally by surprise by Ferguson and the, the conditions that led to the, uh, the problem. Um, Mr. Marsh, I I think they knew, but it's very easy to ignore it when it doesn't impact you directly. And so I think that you're right. African-Americans, having lived in this city most of their lives, and even those who come to the city, are well aware. I think it's very easy to ignore it when it doesn't directly impact your community. Um, I don't think it's that you don't know. I think it's that you choose not to actively engage in the process. We did a program yesterday on the 10th anniversary of the shooting at the Kirkwood City Hall, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, this issue came up as well, that uh, th- that community that uh, that man came from who uh, was responsible for the shooting was invisible to yes. the rest to the rest of that yeah. town. Meacham Park. Yeah. Meacham Park, mm-hmm. of course, yeah. of course. I'm interested in this suspension issue because I think, Catherine, a lot of people were stunned to find out how frequently kids, very young kids, are suspended from school. Is that changing at all? I know you're talking... You know, you've, you've had conversations, but has it factually changed? Um, and and I would uh, defer to uh, uh, Reverend Anderson on this because that's uh, her group works more specifically with that. But I do know there still continues to be problems and challenges um, with kids being suspended from schools and schools. Um, Instead of looking at the reasons why, why is this kiddo not paying attention? Why is he sleeping through class? Why is he misbehaving? Um, instead of really getting to the fundamental of what's causing those, the first action is to suspend um, and then maybe circle back and look at those issues. Um, so I don't know the numbers specifically, um, but I, I do think it continues to to be a problem. We. As of last year, St. Louis Public Schools was the first to come on board with us, and they actually eliminated out-of-school suspension for kindergarten through third grade as of last year. Um, This year, Maplewood Richmond Heights has committed that this year they will end out-of-school suspension for kindergarten through third grade. Um, And as I said, there's probably a good 23 other school (laughs) districts who within the next year to two years have agreed to seriously look at and change their policies. And I don't have all of them off the top of my head, but I know for sure that as of last year, St. Louis Public Schools ended theirs, and so did this year, Maplewood Richmond Heights. This is not exactly moving at lightning speed. No. 
<laughs> we have to take a break. Let's do that now. We're talking about young people and the crises that they face in today's society. With me in studio is Reverend Karen Anderson, President of Metropolitan Congregations United, and Catherine Banks, Director of the New Children's Rights Clinic at Washington University School of Law. If you'd like to get into the conversation, we'd love to have you. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you would prefer, send us a tweet at STL. On air. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation on trying to help kids from disadvantaged families. Catherine, let me come back to, uh, to you because one of the things that pops up on this program a lot involves incarceration of, of juveniles, and we've seen a lot of uh, of, of reportage on, on that recently. Tell me some of the some of the really negative things that happen when a young person is incarcerated. Um, well, they are first of all removed from their family um, and removed from the connections that they might have in their community. Even if a child has made some poor choices, um, their supports and those who um, can be most helpful them for them are often found in the community. So they're removed from those supports. Um, in detention centers and detention settings, um, while I know there are efforts made to put in mental health services, um, the kids may not necessarily get all of the mental health services that they need. Um, they're removed from school. Um, and school is provided in area detention centers. But again, this is a place that's sort of a, um, a stop along the way. It's not your permanent school setting. This isn't going to be the teacher that you're going to have for the rest of the school year. And so you, you lose continuity. Um, I think removing a child from the environment that they know well, even if they're not functioning so great um, in that environment, is detrimental to um, their mental health. Is any progress being made in, in reforming this process? I believe it is. Um, so um, when I started doing this work almost 20 years ago, when I would go into the juvenile detention centers um, in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, they had numbers of kids up in 150, 200 kids in the detention center. Um, I'm happy now when I talk uh, to people doing the work on the ground um, and also go into the detention centers that kids um, are in the single dig digits. Um, so they are reducing the number of kids that are in detention centers, finding alternatives to keep the kids safe and also the community safe while they work to address whatever issue it was that brought the kids um, into the jurisdiction of the court. My son was a public defender in the city, and he used to talk a lot about the development of the brain and what was going on with these these teenagers whose brains are not fully developed when they're uh, put in a condition such as solitary confinement. Right. And and so you are you take these kids whose brains are sort of or not sort of are still developing and you put them in a very structured um, enclosed environment and their brains don't develop in a in a normal way and you see that kids who are in solitary confinement do have a negative impact and have trouble adjusting um, out in the real world after that and and there is legislation right now in Missouri where we're working to uh, raise the age of juvenile court um, based on this idea of juvenile brain development by one year from 17 to 18 right is that correct yes 17 to 18 but that can make a huge difference an additional year for the juvenile courts um, service providers to work with kids can 
mean the difference between a kid um, continuing down a path of wrong choices and a, a kiddo getting back on the right track and being able to be a productive member of society. Well, speaking of the legislature, Reverend Anderson, what, what kind of help do you get from politicians in, in your efforts here in the state of Missouri? I'm, I'm chuckling right now. Um, not as much as we would hope. Um, I think in your announcements before you were saying we just took a, you know, the Democrats took a seat. Um, one of the reasons for changing the title of our program from Breaking the Pipeline to Pathways to Power is that we realize it requires not just those who are passionate around this work to become engaged, but that we also need legislation to become engaged. Um, we can put programs together to address needs, but if certain policies do not change, um, then our children are still at risk. So going back to what Catherine just spoke about, raise the age. That's critical to the work that we're doing around juvenile justice. And so um, we we hope the politicians are hearing us. But when we go to Jeff City to lobby, it's very often that we're not able to talk to anyone, that nobody wants to sit down and talk about these issues with us. Um, and so we realize that it's important to not just engage legislators, but right now there's a move to engage the community through what we call voter education and voter engagement around these issues so that if this um, ballot initiative comes up to raise the age, people understand what's at stake and so that they can vote in order to help our children progress. Catherine, does this change that we're talking about here, the increasing the age, does that have to be a statewide legislation? Can it be done locally? Um, and it has to be statewide. Um, it is state statutes that um, govern and determine. Mm -hmm. So it would have to be a, a state change. But I see... Um, Anything that we do to help kids is an investment in our future. It's an investment in our cities, um, no matter where you live in the state of Missouri. Um, it, you know, Who knows when the child that we impact is going to be the child that figures out how to cure cancer. Um, and we can't assume that that child is going to come from Ladue or West County. It may be a child who is you know, um, sitting in um, a classroom right now in, in um, Gateway Elementary School, right? We don't, we don't know. So we have to invest. Right. I have a caller here who wants to get into the discussion, so let's bring in Cortland. He's a trucker, and he's on the road. Go ahead, Cortland. Well, like I was saying about this Ferguson, I, I really, I live close to Ferguson. I live in Florida, and nothing's really changed. Everybody can say whatever they want to say, but nothing's really changed. Um, for the Mike Brown, a lot of us are tired of these um, incidents going to grand juries instead of a, a jury of, a, of, a, of their peers, you know. That seems to happen a lot with police officers. We have a lot of questions about George Zimmerman, disobeying a direct police order and getting away with murder. As far as the kids, uh, no, they shouldn't be put out of school and everything, but that's been going on so long. But the system's been rigged for us for, for decades, you know. It's up to my, my kind to realize that and do better. So, Cortland, th thank you for the call. I, I think you can hear there's a certain degree of frustration in his voice. And as we were talking before, this is not a new uh, issue to people like, uh, like Cortland. Mm -hmm. What about recreation facilities? This comes to my mind now in this discussion because we had Martin Matthews from the Matthews Dickey Boys Club uh, and Boys and Girls Club, excuse me, on the other day. And thousands of kids have gone through that program and that there's been a ripple effect because they go out into various communities and they have influence. But it starts with recreation and someplace to go. Do we have enough of that around here? 
Reverend? You know, that's that's not really my area. Yeah. I would say that we don't have enough avenues for our young people. Yeah. Um, but I think that's also in the schools. We've seen that schools have eliminated many of the extracurricular programs um, that provided outlets for children in order to develop, whether it was um, music or band or other sports. Um, and I think that all plays a part. I also think it plays a part that we don't have as much downtime um, out of classrooms. I'm I'm a baby boomer, and I remember, you know, recesses and breaks and things that allow children to be children. Um, I was saying before that we expect children to have attention spans that are greater than adults, and I think that's unreasonable. And I think that when we have areas and when you have these, um, there are schools where they incorporate play and they incorporate music into the teaching that you see the children grow and flourish. I think the idea of raising the age is because um, a 17-year-old is not necessarily mentally, um, emotionally, developmentally prepared, and we don't allow children to be children anymore. We now expect children to be little adults, and I think that's had a very negative impact. Um, and I agree with your caller. It's not new for us, but I do believe that there are new things that we can do to begin to change the system so that the children who come behind my grandchildren or even my grandchildren will have a better opportunity to flourish in the society in which they live. But to change the system, you've got to have the politicians on board. You, you've yes. got to. Yeah. It's a systemic issue. And so programs are great. Um, love Matthew Dickey's. But if we don't change the systems, mm -hmm. what I see is that when those wonderful children walk outside of Matthew Dickey Boys and Girls Club and someone has seen a child they think has committed a crime, they're not asking, did you just leave the Boys or Girls mm -hmm. Club? They're only seeing a little black or brown girl or boy. Mm -hmm. And so we have to impact the policies um, that promote and sustain the racism and the bias that we see against children. Did you want to add something, Catherine? You look like you were. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it is um, focusing not just on uh, on the juvenile justice system, but also um, I think a critical piece to that healing and moving forward is also um, finding ways to connect the community with the police force and having police officers not be someone scary. And again, go back to being someone who can is there to help you and is not there to lock you up or lock your mom up or lock your dad up. Do you anticipate any kind of a change with a new police chief? I hope for a change with the new police mm -hmm. chief. I am eternally hopeful. I think when you work with kids, you have to be internally hopeful. They are. Mm -hmm. um, and so you learn to operate. Um, and so I, I hope um, there is a change. I know with Judge Edwards as the new public safety director, um, he's certainly passionate about that. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I'm feeling positive about changes. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in another uh, caller, another listener. Jeremy joins us from University City. Jeremy, go ahead, please. Hi, Don. How are you guys doing today? Great. Great topic you guys are talking about, um, but the way I see it, we need a whole paradigm shift. Uh, I think the, the worst thing about the last election was that you know Bernie Sanders gave us hope that we might actually implement policies like Norway or Sweden, in which they actually have people, uh, experts, if you will, who have their PhDs who, who know what's best for children to actually listen to what they say. Whereas here, you know, we study, we get our PhDs, and, and nobody even listens. I don't even know what the point is. Uh, for example, you know, uh, the Pediatrician Association of America says that uh, we shouldn't even be starting school for these teenagers until 9 or 10 o'clock. But because of politics and everything else, we can't even implement something as simple as that. Uh, until we start looking at all our children as a whole and doing everything we can for the betterment of them and listening to our experts, 
you know, we're just really spinning our wheels. Jeremy, thanks for the call. Well, he's on your side. Absolutely. We <laughs> agree. And I think part of what he's talking about is looking at, particularly our children, through a restorative lens and not such a punitive lens. And our nation, justice, um, is looked at so punitively. We have to punish people for, you know, their actions, where we can instead restore them into community and into the life of the community um, by addressing different practices. You know, going back to things like there are school districts around the nation who've um, instituted policies where rather than suspending, they have quiet rooms and they have counselors who are trained to deal with children who are in the midst of crisis to teach them things like self-soothing and self-management, which then equates to how they act outside of the classroom. So I agree with him completely. And I think we have to also again, look at this as a community, right? And that if in your, if you live in Ferguson, you're not just focusing on the kids in Ferguson, but you also realize that the kids in Clayton also have an impact. And so looking at children and um, taking a community approach to um, working with and advocating for our children. Our time is winding down. I want to remind folks, I mentioned at the outset that there's a, a meeting tomorrow night, a presentation tomorrow night, Women's uh, Voices Raised for Social Justice presents Juvenile Injustice, Kids in Crisis from School to Courts, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock at the Heights in Richmond Heights. I know that, uh, Catherine, you're going to be there. Yes. And and uh, you were scheduled to be there, uh, Reverend, but uh, instead... Uh, that's uh, Reverend Dr. Dietra Baker is going to be there in, yes. in, in your stead. Uh, what do you expect and hope to come out of a meeting like this tomorrow night, Catherine? Um, I'm always excited when people come together to talk about children and youth. Um, what I hope is that people leave the meeting understanding what some of the issues are, um, feeling comfortable to ask questions, um, and understanding how they might be able to make a difference in the lives of children in, in the city of St. Louis and the whole St. Louis metropolitan area. Reverend Anderson, what's your hope for the takeaway? I agree. I hope people come and find a greater understanding of the issues and then find a desire to engage in the process. Um, find organizations that are working, whether it's Catherine's organization, whether it's MCU, find ways to engage in the work that's being done to help our children. Because as she said, it's about the community as a whole. We used to always say Ferguson is everywhere. And just because it happened in Ferguson, Ferguson can be in Clayton, it can be in Ladue, it can be in West County. These are our children. And I hope that people go away saying, what can I do to make a difference where I am? You don't have to look outside of your community. Look at your own school districts. What's going on with kids in your school district and how can you become engaged? Karen Anderson and Catherine Banks, thank you so much for being with us. A reminder, Women's Voices Raised for Social Justice presents Juvenile Injustice, Kids in Crisis from School to Courts tomorrow night at 7 o'clock at the Heights in Richmond Heights. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.